This is Channel 253. In this episode of Interchangeable White Ladies. What's happening right now, which is really exciting, is for the first time, I think students are questioning their teachers. And Mm -hmm. in the way that's like, do you do you know how to do the process of checking what you know as well and seeing like if you are guiding this conversation in the class with Mm -hmm. your own biases, with your own perspectives. And I think that's part of the work that I love doing where youth can do that. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. One, two, two. interchangeable. White ladies! Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast. I'm Hope. I'm Megan. Today's essential question is how are young people around the world being equipped to address important social issues of our times? So today we are very excited to be joined by a special guest. Her name is Allie Christensen from Bangkok, Thailand, um, and she grew up attending an international school in the heart of the city. She went on to pursue her interest in architecture where she studied studio art design and environmental studies at a liberal arts college called St. Olaf College in Minnesota, USA. She quickly changed her career path after graduating and working for AmeriCorps as an academic advisor at a public school in Minnesota, where she supported designing intervention programs and provided academic guidance and social-emotional support to underserved and at-risk youth in the public school. Her experience working with youth at stark demographic environments has led her to develop an interest in education that addresses student welfare and more specifically the curriculum and social emotional programs that support the development of our youth. Ali currently works as a program manager and designer Jump Foundation in Thailand where she designs and runs programs dedicated to building capacity for young leaders in international schools to address important social issues, injustices, and topics of DEI that exist within school communities. So thank you so much for being with us um, today, Ali. We're excited to have you. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. This is, I told you before, but this is the first podcast I've been on. So we're honored. We're honored. Awesome. So I think to get us rolling, is there anything beyond your bio that you think it's important for listeners to know about you to help kind of understand the perspective that you're coming with or that will help shape our conversation as we talk about youth development today? Something that's important for me, I think one of the things that I always grapple with, and um, especially I'm about a four, am I three or four years out of university now, um, is that everybody always asks me about my qualification, my experience, oh. and, and am I a teacher? And for me, I was like, I worked um, as a promise fellow in AmeriCorps for a year, and then I came back home to Bangkok, um, and then I started working for the John Foundation, um, and I was extremely interested in facilitation and just working with youth in different capacities, and there was a couple projects that Jump was a part of, and there's an impact program, which kind of works with underserved youth as, as well, and um, there's a lot of different opportunity here. So I found that like as a great way to get started and in building like my toolbox. But 
every time people would start asking me, I'm like, yes, I don't have my, my background and I don't have a background in education. I don't have a background in psychology. And I think what I keep talking to young people about is you just need to be interested in, in whatever mm-hmm. you want to go do. So I think this is me doing what I'm preaching at the moment, which is like, no, I would like to get my master's in the next few years for sure. Um, but I'm still in my mid twenties figuring it out. And um, my experience has just been from living and growing up in an international school, moving to the U S for university um, and having a liberal arts college experience Um learning a little bit more about the public school system in the U.S. when I started working for AmeriCorps. And then I came back and shifted demographics again back to the international school system. And so it was just, that's basically the the background of my experience. So I think that's helpful to to let people know that I'm, I'm not a teacher. I didn't go to school and, and for anything specific in education. And, and so um, a lot of what maybe my perspective will offer is mostly based on just experience and conversations mm-hmm. I've had in the international school. Um, uh, yeah. Space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think it's such a unique well, background, right? Like I mm-hmm. think that also like to value and validate what you just said is that you bring something to the space that very few people are able to bring to the space. And so um, we're just really excited to have this conversation. I'm excited to have this conversation with you and get your perspective on different things and what you've seen, across kind of a really big expanse of experiences mm-hmm. with different educational systems and different, um, like just how youth interact with the world in different, mm-hmm. like in different places. That's, I'm excited about that. It's really fascinating. Yeah. To me. Yeah. So I was wondering what made you choose to go back to Thailand and get involved in this work there rather than staying in the States? Mm-hmm. Cause it sounds like you were pretty with AmeriCorps, you had really interesting opportunities and you're plugged into that community. So what made you shift? I think mostly it was just coming back home and spending some time with my parents. But then I knew I wanted to keep adding some tools to my mm-hmm. lifelong toolbox and an opportunity to get um, trained up as a facilitator at Jump. And I knew Jump before because they had worked at. So I went to NIST International School in Bangkok, okay. and that rings a bell for anyone. Um, and it's the in the heart of the city. And so Jump had done. Um, a few programs at NIST when I was there as a student. Mm -hmm. And so I actually like did one of their leadership programs in school. And I just thought this is a really cool program. Um, Mm -hmm. I really liked uh, that we didn't have to touch any, you know, notebooks or pencils and everything about conversation (laughs) and getting up and even doing icebreakers. I was like, this is so exciting. We don't do this in school. So (laughs) I just remember feeling that. And I was in uh, year nine, which is eighth grade. And yeah, so I had known of them. Um, and then I, um, yeah, I applied and I really enjoyed the type of people that were working there. Mm. Same. It catered to a lot of like younger, um, specifically expats, I would say, um, that came, um, for different reasons and were really passionate about, um, working with youth and about education in different ways because jump, there's like about three different, I would call them like departments where there's a jump experiences. Um, we design programs outside the classroom. So it's a lot of trip coordination, trip running, um, trip designing. Um, and that's a huge portion of 
the foundation. And then another part is schools where we go into the schools and we run all sorts of programs with uh, schools. Like, so we could do, I'm working with the hope right now outside the program, but um, outside this uh, conversation, but yeah, um, it's an online program. And that was kind of developed after um, COVID had hit. And so uh, we do a lot of programs online now with schools but usually we would go in person, we would run in-person workshops all the way from facilitation workshops with students, leadership workshops. There's a couple ones called like global citizenship, which I think is such an interesting topic, especially coming back and being mm. like, God, should we even use that word? Like, should that be something that we do? Um, and yeah, I have a lot of opinions and, um, sometimes <laughs> I, I know sometimes I'm like, I don't know if I should say this because we're working like four schools now, um, instead of being in a school and, and, um, and having some sort of say there. So mm. I don't know how much I should be saying or not be saying, but I figured I'm like, I'm, I can speak from my own opinion. Right. Mm-hmm. Now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, so it was mostly just being interested in, in wanting to be engaged in working with youth and the people there is really what make the, the job mm-hmm. worth it for me. Mm-hmm. And so some of the people became my mentors and um, a lot of them are passionate, interested in similar things. Um, and a lot of them just designed a bunch of different and workshops and programs for students and I was just really inspired in the way that they were able to hold space for conversation I was like mm-hmm. they have life skill tools that mm-hmm. I don't even know how to how to do mm-hmm. and like one of my mentors at jump uh he he's one of my good friends to this day and he always says um or he picked up one of these tools he's like always lead with a question before mm-hmm. providing any comment mm-hmm. or advice and those are just little things that I'm like I didn't learn that from my professors. (laughs) So I just remember being like, why don't we teach kids these skills? And they're just like social emotional skills Mm -hmm. that we use every single day in the classroom. Um, Yeah. So a little bit about why I'm working for for Jump. And I've been here for about two years um, working for Jump. And there's been a couple cool projects I've been a part of. But right now, one that... um, that has kind of taken off is one called Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Collective, which brings together um, five different schools, uh, five students from each school. So it brings together 25 students total. And it can really, we can have one with three schools. We can have one all the way up to five schools. But the whole idea is we train up facilitators in the space um, to hold conversations and reflections around social activism and all sorts of leadership students are taking. Um, in the space of DNI, and that's like a topic right now that's kind of blown up and taken um, traction in the international school space. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely, it's it's difficult for me to articulate what exactly is that because people ask me all the time, like, "What is this?" <laughs> so, well, that oh actually God, leads into my next question. So, for our listeners that don't know, right, we're always trying to not like sit in the jargon. I think, like in the education space and yeah. like youth development space, we like have an acronym for everything. Can you just give like an ex- or ex- explanation? We love a good acronym in the education space. You know, like all of that jargon. Can you just explain what is DEI? Right. What what is that? What does that mean? What does it stand for? What does that look work it look like? For diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure where the birth of all this come, but they've had we've had diversity, inclusion, 
sort of workshops mm-hmm. and trainings. I've heard of so many of them in like vision statements of organizations yeah. mm-hmm. and schools, yeah. right? Like it's, these yeah. terms aren't new. Um, but yeah. I think what the priority and the focus is, is really about tackling the injustices or even just issues that exist that don't allow everybody to have equal access mm-hmm. to opportunities and equal access to um, uh, any anything really. Um, and so- I think it's raising awareness. There's a component of like, let's bring this to the table and just talk about um, where are people at? What issues are people in leadership not seeing? And mm-hmm. I think it allows everybody else who's being employed or if we're talking within a school, everyone else who's facing these injustices um, and uh, such as discrimination. And I think even the way that if you're hired in a workplace, that's one way. But I think in a school, it can be about how am I treated differently than maybe my other peers? How am I looked differently Mm -hmm. than than my other peers? And potentially looking at the structure of the school that allows these issues to exist. Mm -hmm. So it's really just bringing light to all sorts of different um, practices and policies and behaviors that all are contributing to the issues that exist in front of us. So... Yeah, I love your point about this is not new. And I Mm -hmm. think back, I started teaching in 06. And in those days, in those days, um, (laughs) the the conversation, I remember (laughs) the olden days, um, a lot of the conversation was around like multiculturalism and trying to understand what that meant. And then I I feel like the word diversity started, like you said, started getting thrown around in like mission statements. And like Mm -hmm. some people were like really triggered by that word because I think it like brought back bad connotations around, you know, affirmative action or whatever Mm -hmm. nonsense they thought it meant, but it didn't mean. And then the shift, I would say like probably the last, what, eight years, six years, Megan, with like throwing the word equity on. And I was like, oh no, this is just another word people are throwing in here to like change diversity, but they never really address what diversity meant or like, like you just listed yeah. a bunch of the, you know, what does it mean p- policy wise? What it mean in hiring practices? What does it mean um, mm-hmm. in the way that we think about the world? And I, I do love the new switch with, maybe not switch, but now the you DEA. layered in around justice. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. DEIB, like yeah. that one yes. word. Yeah. yeah. For belonging. Um, yeah. But I actually, I, I'm kind of glad that the, it's continuing to evolve. I don't know. What, what do you all think yeah, about that? Yeah, it's interesting. So, um, Ali, just so for you, um, some background knowledge on me. I worked in the nonprofit world. Teaching is a career change for me. And so I worked in youth development nonprofits for about eight to 10 years before I became a teacher. Um, And it was really interesting because I was introduced to these concepts in the nonprofit youth development world and then moved into the educational space. And I think in a lot of ways, the nonprofits that I worked at were ahead of the curve right? They were a part of those conversations before school systems were a part of the conversations. Um, And so when I went into teaching, it almost felt like I was taking a couple steps back. And by a couple, I mean many steps backwards in that conversation and integration into work with kids. Um, and, And specifically in the engagement of youth in those conversations. And so when I worked at the Boys and Girls Club, we were having these conversations, right? Like we were having these conversations with our youth, like with our teens. Like we had programs around equity and inclusion and social justice um, 
with our youth. When I worked at the Y, I had, you know, youth in government where we were writing policies together and we were talking about the impact of government on just like social justice. So it's just, it was interesting. And it sounds like a lot of the work that you do is engaging youth in those conversations. And how do you equip youth to mm-hmm. tackle these issues and ha- allowing them space to explore what they care about, mm-hmm. right? And why do they care about it? And what does this mean in the bigger picture? And um, and so, yeah, I would say that I started hearing that equity word, like, um, oh, yeah. right, like probably around 2011, 2010, um, was when like it's well you mentioned also social justice got thrown in there for a minute right yeah. like that was kind of in between maybe in between times I, my timelines maybe messed yeah, up but. social justice came after the equity work for sure like that that started when I was at the Y probably 2015 was when I started to like see programming coming from like after school programs into like developing those um that developing that work with teens was probably 2014, 2015 was when I began to see it happening in the nonprofit, like after school. I don't know, Allie, if you've kind of experienced something a little different. Yeah, I just have a follow-up question, actually. I'm just curious, like, did those conversations change over time for you? As you were saying, like, you've been in the um, nonprofit for, like, did you say eight to ten years? Yes. And were those conversations at the beginning of the, the ten mm-hmm. years were they different at the end? Oh, absolutely. I remember, so I got my first job um, at the Boys and Girls Club in, like, literally I was hired in the December of 2007, started in January of 2008. Um, And absolutely, I think that even this, like, movement from, and also, like, I, I really do want to say, like, I don't mean to place anything on the nonprofits because I also was really young. And so my own awareness and learning changed and shifted. And so my right. perception yeah. of the work that the organizations were doing was also probably changing and shifting, right? So my understanding of the conversations along with the conversations that were being had absolutely right. shifted. And so it absolutely went from at least in my mind, it shifted from, oh, these like really underserved communities need this work and need this Mm -hmm. like saving to um, highlighting and empowering the, the, like just the power in these communities. And like it moved from um, like the achievement gap to the uh, opportunity gap. And I think that that was a really big shift that um, began mm-hmm. to happen in the conversations where it was a lack, a less focus on like the lack, the the gap in achievement or um, the work that kids were producing or the success kids were finding or lack of success, and more so to the lack of opportunities that were being provided to these communities for very systemic reasons. And I think that that was a shift that I watched happen, where it was. Um, the shift of the deficit on the community and rather the deficit on the system that was underserving um, these communities and why, right? And so focusing on mm-hmm. what about the systems that underserved these communities? What is the impact of underserving a community? Um, and so I, I, that's the shift that I felt and that I saw happen. Um, 
And I, I have to say, like, of the all the organizations I worked at, the Boys and Girls Club did it in a really beautiful, eloquent way. Um, and I just, I, to this day, have a lot of respect for the work that that organization does around this. Um, but yeah, like, that's definitely, for me at least, that was the shift that I saw kind of happen. Right. And it's so interesting because it's like, I think the same conversations, so I'm working with primarily international school students at the moment and the conversations about DIB are all okay and, and J and, and BDJ and <laughs> all, the, all, know, it, yeah. like, all <laughs> these and I want to come back to your question Hope, um, about the the changing terms but the the conversation is like what does justice look like in the international school community mm-hmm. right you know, in the international school community we talk about um injustices okay like who's where what are you talking about yeah. there's still so much um I would say lack of awareness behind what the students are facing themselves and then what are the issues that exist and why do they exist and like you said for these systemic reasons Mm -hmm. and um and I think there's some reckoning that a lot of international Mm -hmm. schools have to do before they even like lead these Mm -hmm. conversations Mm -hmm. with students because they themselves have to do it right they have to be like well why do we exist in the first place like we are benefiting off of our host country and we also hire specifically foreign, foreign mm. teachers um, and specifically white and specifically teachers that have education in specific places. And then the criteria goes on. And so I know in Thailand specifically, and I might be wrong about this now, but I think when in my last conversations with a few people, um, like a year ago, we were speaking about hiring processes in um, in in international schools in Thailand, I think that um, if you're Thai but had an international school education and you want to international school and then got your master's degrees elsewhere um, and you come back and want to be an international school teacher, if you have no other citizenship, it goes back down to citizenship. You have a different salary than the foreign teachers. So it's still divided in that way. And to this day, like I, I won't call out specific international schools, but I, it's pretty obvious. And if we're speaking about race specifically, mm-hmm. like colorism is such a huge issue in, in Southeast Asia. And so when, when our schools are hiring, um, hiring people, they're looking at skin color for secretary positions, like lighter skin, or they come in with certain specific, like, or yeah, biases where they assume that darker skin um, uh, members in the community want to work in other positions like being a maid or all sorts of other things, or maybe like a, an assistant teacher rather than, um, whatever it is, rather than an actual teacher. Mm-hmm. And, um, and some of these testimonies just have come, have come out in the recent years where, uh, we're bringing these conversations forward, but it's still really difficult because I think like, especially for, um, in Thailand, this is just based on experience. I know a lot of people don't feel comfortable bringing it to HR, mm-hmm. bringing it to mm-hmm. leadership because the people that hire them are the people in power. And who are those people? Mm-hmm. They're mostly white. They're majority people that uphold the system and, and also just, um, are part of a different society. So for them, it feels like there's a power dynamic. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Of like, mm-hmm. Oh, I feel I have to feel lucky to be here. 
if mm-hmm. these people want to hire me. Yeah. And it's just such a weird, yeah, it's, it's, it's shocking almost. And I grew up in it as a student and you're blinded yeah. by this mm-hmm. because as a student, you're told you have the best education in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't know how lucky you are. So one of the things that we talk about in the program um, that I'm running right now is social privileges. Mm-hmm. And we start with the question, what do you know? And it was, it's an activity that I designed from Adam Grant. Um, if any of you know Adam Grant, I'm a big fan. Um, he wrote a book called Think Again and um, listened to a lot of podcasts that he's on, but he basically encourages people to question what you know to be true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I think that's a vital tool when working in DEI work. And I'll circle back to your question, Hope, about like, what do you think about the terms changing? And I said, I actually, like, they're always going to change. Things yeah. are mm-hmm. always going to change. We're going to know better than what we did two years ago, yep. than what we did yep. a year ago. So yep. when it changes, like, be open to it. Like, be open to critiquing mm-hmm. what you know. Mm-hmm. Be open to changing what you know. So mm-hmm. whatever we know diversity means, whatever we know inclusion means, mm-hmm. like, we're using these terms right now because that's what's known. That's mm-hmm. what's universal. Mm-hmm. We're on the same playing mm-hmm. field. If you bring it up, I know exactly what you're talking about. Maybe, maybe. Um, but the whole idea, <laughs> I know, right? Like, I was like, ooh, yeah. like, here's a dictionary of the yeah. way I'm using this word. Yeah, right. But it's basically, it's asking people to just rethink and yeah. ask yeah. them to say, okay, what's, some, what's a question I have about yeah. X? And so yeah. the activity that we make the students do before we introduce any new topic. So we ask them like, what do you know about privileges? Mm-hmm. And they take a sticky note and they move it over to the three columns and three columns there. Um, I don't know things. I don't know things. I think I know things I know I know. And so the whole module or the whole um, session that they're coming in on, they come in and they start every conversation with what do I know right now? What's mm-hmm. everything I know or some things get into a conversation with peers and then they do a whole module on, all right, let's explore social privileges. And every single answer, especially in the international school space, and this is coming from personal experience as well, we grow up thinking that privileges is something that we should feel guilty about. Mm. And I'm like, who is driven by guilt to make anything? <laughs> yeah. Like, like yeah. you know, and... Well, Guilty you know, shame. Brene, yeah. hello. Oh Thank my you gosh, so I much. love me some good <laughs> Brene Brown. Oh, she's yeah. amazing. Um, <laughs> so I would love to continue to unpack this, especially um, the the adults that we we place within the systems that are supporting youth. I think that that is a really rich conversation. But first, I think we need to take a break, just a really quick break, and then when we come back, I would love to really talk about that and. Um, the impact that we see on the the DEIB work that's happening. Hello, friends. This is Marguerite Martin, creator of MoveToTacoma.com and co-founder of Channel 253. It's bad out there, folks. Home prices in Pierce County are up 15% year over year. While it's no secret that the market is hot, you may not know that Tacoma has been the hottest housing market in the country for several years. There is an extreme shortage of homes for buyers to buy. 
Having a local Tacoma buyer's agent that specializes in the neighborhood and price range you're after can mean the difference between losing or winning the bid on your dream home. If you're looking to sell your current home and find something that meets your needs better, having a neighborhood expert handle your listing will impact how much money you net off of your sale. The right agent to market and sell a home on the West Slope might not be the same person who has the expertise and connections to find you an income generating duplex somewhere else. All agents have specialties and I know the players for every niche. Best of all, it doesn't cost you anything. Great local agents are happy to pay me a finder's fee if you end up buying or selling. And you can rest easy knowing you're going to get a great agent who specializes in exactly what you're looking for. If you want to learn more, visit MoveToTacoma.com and use the contact form. Thanks for listening to Channel 253. All right, listeners, if you have not yet subscribed to Channel 253, go do it. It's not that hard. There's a button in our show notes. You hear us harp on you all the time about this. <laughs> Plus, there's pop-in conversation in our Slack channel. It's and so good. Tacoma Local, there's so many good food um, advice. There's lots of hot conversation about local politics. There's great yes. book recs. And even if you're not a Tacoma Local, you can subscribe to the channel anyway. It's only $4 a month. And I think for most of us, um, we can manage that. And if you can't manage that, that's okay. Don't feel guilt. But also, mm -hmm. like, you know. Mm -hmm. um, support the local uh, service that you're getting and the conversation that we're having. So Allie left us with a lot of food for thought. And I think, Megan, you had kind of mentioned some conversation around the adults that you were thinking about who uphold these systems and what we can do to support kids. I was also thinking a little bit about um, just this point you made, Allie, around reckoning. Mm. And one of the things I, I kind of want to throw out here, I don't think it matters if you're in a U.S. public school, a U.S. private school, international school, wherever you're at, I think... We're, once you're in schools, we're in the institution. And so whatever the institution is, we have to have, well, maybe we don't have to, but we should have <laughs> reflective conversations about what does it mean to be part of that system? You know, how is that system upholding injustices or infrastructures that favor certain folks over other folks? Um, and I don't think any educational system is devoid of those things. Like everybody's got some version of that they have to reconcile with. And if they don't, there's consequences for it in terms of their own thinking, but I think also for impact on student learning and kids as well. So I just wanted to throw that out there um, because I hope hopefully listeners are thinking about this in conjunction with what they already know in the systems mm -hmm. that they're working in, not necessarily like one system is better than the other. It's all messed up. It's all, <laughs> and we all have to do our internal work too, because like the school system is not going in the way in the States. Let me jump on my soapbox for a second. Do That's it. never going away. <laughs> I feel right? like we need to and start also, having like a sound bite for when Hope jumps on her sound box. I love it. It's it's a beautiful well, moment and, in the episodes. And like international schools are never going away either. Like I was just talking to some people this week about it. Like if we want to talk about decolonizing our spaces, should they all just go away? Well, they're not going to go away. So even if that was like the old, it's like capitalism, right? Like, mm -hmm. yes, I want it to go away, but we're kind of stuck with it. So then how do I fight it or how do I reform it? And um, to any of our listeners who feel like I should keep fighting, I mean, I am, but also I think we got to face, face the facts also. So I'll step down from my soapbox. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I just wanted to throw that out there as well. Um, Megan, did you want to shift to your question? Oh, well, I, um, I think that you both are, um, for what I understand, doing some work, hope you're doing some work with the Jump Foundation, um, which is how I think we found you, Allie, which we're really excited about. But I think that like having conversations around who is leading that work and who is being hired to lead that 
um, create that curriculum, lead that work with youth? And then what message does that send to these kids who are going through these programs? Um, And so the importance of that, what do you see in terms of not just within the Jump Foundation, but across the board in this DEIB work in terms of people of color leading the conversations? Oh, that's such a good question. Oh, where do I even start? Um, (laughs) Oh, gosh, I think what's coming to mind first is that the, the perspective and what I've seen basically in the international school space is that there's very little direction and and examples for approaches for what schools can do, right? Because it's such a newer space. Like it, we know that this is a part of all our vision statements, vision statements, sorry, and, and values. And you can see it on the websites of every international school and they almost pride themselves off of diversity almost. And, um, and, some potentially can say tokenize their host country and mm-hmm. all sorts of um, people that work in that space um, for for the type of environment that or that they're selling to 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 parents. And so, um, I think what's happening right now is there's kind of this immersion of of schools and teachers. And I think teachers are really leading it forward of, of asking the tough questions to leadership and saying mm-hmm. like, what is happening here? Like, why aren't we addressing this? Um, we've never had a training. We've never had a conversation. And that's, that kind of started simultaneously um, with um, students doing the same thing mm-hmm. um, and really using social media as a platform to say like, Hey, like these are some stories. These are some testimonies. And I saw this personally last year. I think when George Floyd was murdered, I think those those were the first conversations that I've seen in the international school space um, on such a wide um, kind of spread scale. And so I was involved with many different conversations with alum in my own school, with uh, students that were connecting through social media and everybody was getting resources for the first time and sharing resources. Mm -hmm. And that's something that it was like, okay, this is what's going on in the U S and then we shifted back to our little bubbles and our little environments. And everybody was like, okay, but that's in the U S what's here. And then we're going like, what do you mean? What's here? This is, we are living in our own and, and it's, we're just sheltered and we can't even speak about it because because we've already said, yes, done, check. We have diversity, yes, done, check. Like mm-hmm. we, there is inclusion available. Like what, what does that even mean? So I think it's like, we're having these conversations for the first time and that's led by both teachers and both students. Um, but I think, I, I'm not so sure if I'm um, answering your question. So feel free to <laughs> hop in and no, read your no, You're good. You're good. I'm Actually, like, I'm okay. One um, quick interruption. So do you think though, in part, because as you're talking, I'm nodding my head um, and I'm thinking about my own, you've been abroad a lot longer and growing up in the system. Um, but I'm wondering if in part of the, part of that, it seems like it's because because the schools are international, you can look at like a huge makeup of massive different passports and we have a lot of different languages represented at the school. Like that part of the box of diversity is really in front of people's faces. And so I right. kind of feel like, is that, I mean, is that kind of what your experience is too? And that's one of the reasons people feel like we, we've got it on lock is because we, you know, we can tick these little things. 
And Absolutely. so then the, is that part of it? Because then it seems Absolutely. like the hard work, as you said, about what is what does that really then mean for the way people are treated or implicit bias or microaggressions? That's mm-hmm. that's a harder conversation. People don't. That's a harder conversation. Have. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think then we are actually reckoning with our own like self worth in a way. Because we're yeah. just like we don't want to get it wrong. We don't want to hurt anybody. We're making it so personal. When and I think it's normal mm-hmm. to do that. Anytime we get something wrong, it feels horrible. And so Mm -hmm. when we're talking about affecting other people's lives and the lives right in front of us, um, I think racism is a a term that everybody will steer away from. And we hear Mm -hmm. that with a lot of isms like racism, sexism, and everybody just wants to say, nope, not me. Like I do this or I've done this. And everybody wants to exempt themselves from being a part of the problem. And Mm -hmm. so I just grew up like this is a little bit more background about myself, but I grew up in an international school doing a ton of service. So service is huge in international schools, right? So I went to IB school and you almost have to do X amount of service hours mm-hmm. yeah. to, to complete the IB program. And I think that's still present to this day. Still is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. still is. I don't know if it's by hours or by reflections now, but it's we're not really talking yeah. about the quality of service. And so I don't really know what the checks and balances are nowadays, but I was part of a service group that pretty much supported volunteerism. And so we would show up at an orphanage um, in a different country and different continent and say, look at who we're helping. And, but as a student, you have no clue. Like if a teacher is teaching you this, I, I believe the teacher, like, why would I even question that? And so I think what's happening right now, which is really exciting is for the first time, I think students are questioning their teachers and Mm -hmm. in the way that's like, do you, do you know how to do the process of checking what you know as well and seeing like if you are guiding this conversation in the class with mm-hmm. your own biases, with your own perspectives? And I think that's part of the work that I love doing where youth can do that mm-hmm. and youth can say, and it's not through blame, but it's through, hey, I think we can all be accountable for, for the problem and keep each other accountable. And the teacher doesn't necessarily have to lead that conversation because they don't have the experiences the students have. And if we're talking about who are the teachers in the international schools, majority, again, are white. Majority are from the US, UK, or Australia. And that was pretty much the makeup, at least at my international school. And I think still is. Canada comes in pretty high in a lot of places too. Canada too, (laughs) Canada too. And New Zealand. I can't forget that. Yeah. I think it's, Um, yeah. yeah. I think of when I'm hearing you all talk about like, this you look at the the makeup of your schools like culturally um like the different cultures and languages and races of students at your schools like it's easy to check the box that like oh we're hitting the mark and it makes me think of this hope I actually think we went to the same seminar workshop on that like rainy Saturday morning a couple years ago and she gave the Probably. example was it the power flower <laughs> yes I think so right okay. was it yes um oh yeah yeah no but I'm thinking of the like the exclusion is like you have a dinner table and exclusion mm. is you don't ever invite them to the dinner table yeah. inclusion is saying hey you can come sit at our table like you come sit at our table we're not going to change anything about our table like but mm-hmm, look right. our table's now so diverse like look at all these diverse mm-hmm. people that we've in- invited to our table and equity is 
taking apart the table. Yeah, like, but also taking apart the table and making it accommodate the people that are sitting there. And, like, there's representation. And it's, like, it doesn't need to look like a normal rectangular table, right? So it's, like, it's giving people what they need. And she gave the example of, like, if you have somebody that's differently abled, like, say, in a wheelchair. It's, like, oh, Mm -hmm. no, you're going to, like, tear apart that table and give them what they need in order to be a part of it and to see themselves in it. And so I think like right now what I'm hearing is that, and it's, and I don't, I'm not in the international school world, but what I'm hearing as an outsider is that you are, like they think just inviting people to the table is enough, but they're mm-hmm. not looking at how the table is rooted in systemic oppression and racism and that they're not like having, I, I think there has to be conversations about what harm are you doing to students of color when you invite them to a space that is white, like a white space that is built by white power, and then tell them that they are, um, what you said, they're lucky to be there. And so when you're told mm-hmm. that you're lucky to be somewhere, you don't question it, and you can't question Absolutely. it. And so then the internalized, um, racism, the internalized misogyny, the microaggressions that hopes you said, like all of a sudden that's your, it's, you put the blame on the students for feeling that way, because if I'm lucky, then this must be a really amazing thing. And so if I don't feel like this thing is really amazing, then there must be something wrong with me. And, and so it's Mm -hmm. just like, there's, by not shifting the system, like diversity is bullshit. I mean, sorry, (laughs) Um, but it's like, it's bull, like it's BS. Like you, Diversity can be even more harmful when you place students into a system that's not built for them and then like m- like mess with their minds and then all, all of a sudden they're walking the rest of their lives with all of these internalized like right. beliefs about themselves and, just, and their identity. Absolutely. And I just think about how many students are entering the world thinking that, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And thinking mm-hmm. like, okay, this is normal. And mm-hmm. I'm always... Like, I think it's interesting that you use the word accommodate and we're like, oh, why do we have to accommodate? Mm -hmm. Because who's missing in the first place and who has to accommodate? Yeah. Who began in those places of power? Absolutely. And I think that's where you just have to take the conversation. But it's very difficult. I don't think a lot of people that are in leadership positions want to take conversations there. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. extremely difficult to reckon with your own, you know, like biases and hidden biases and and faults because it's associated with like having some sort of um fault yeah or like bad intention like bad intention I one of my favorite books that I, I I have ever read but I read it in my um undergraduate program was called change or die and it's all Mm. about change theory and how Mm. the human um, experience, like how humans change in a long-term way. And so his whole, um, theory is that like fear and shame is not an adequate way to change. He was like, if fear was an adequate change, um, method, then nobody who was diagnosed with lung cancer would still smoke. Like nobody Mm -hmm. who had one massive heart attack would continue to eat red meat. Like fear is not um hello um, vaccine vaccine but it's like but you know what i mean so it's like fear is not an effective means for sustainable change right and the reason behind it is that change requires 
a significant vulnerability with yourself. And it requires a significant ability to recognize that by changing, you are not discrediting everything that came before, but that you are building on it. And that like, and so oftentimes humans feel like change means I have to admit that I was wrong up until this moment of change. And I think for for leadership, if you look at like when white men are placed in like power, positions of power, there's like the study that shows that like they go in with really good intentions, but literally the act of power, the existence (laughs) of power in their lives develops their ego to such a place that they, because of the power, then become incapable of changing, incapable of seeing the systems of oppression. Because in their minds, if they admit that the system unfairly benefited them, that it invalidates all of the things that they think make them special. Totally. Right? And so it's like this really interesting anyway, – I've been very um, – I learned about change theory in my undergraduate. I love it. Like systems theory and change theory, if you haven't looked into those two concepts, like are fascinating. They're fascinating. One of the things I was thinking about as you were talking, Megan, is I was thinking about like what's the different abroad versus like in the U.S. And I think in some places, because there's a lot of parallels. Like I think about when I worked in Clow Park School District, like we are very diverse, mm-hmm. high, mo- high mobility for like military and like a lot of those things we were really proud of. But the teaching force still was very white, mm-hmm. still was very female, still was not really doing all the things that needed to be done to meet our kids. Right. And and there was effort obviously made around that, but I was thinking about that. And like the difference, I feel like a little bit in the U S is simply like a lot of the kids know that the system's not built for them, our kids of color. And they're just like, halas, right? Like there's like, it is what it is. Like it is what it is. And hence the reactions that they have in those school spaces. Mm -hmm. And there's less of a like, um, belief that I, I think there's still kids that try that do believe it or buy in, but it's interesting to think about the way that the adults have drank the Kool-Aid about, like you said, drunk with power or whatever it is in that moment. And they are, you know, we now are saying the things that people would have said to us or, you know, instead of like questioning. Absolutely. I also think of like what you guys have been saying about the international schools. And um, I don't think we have time today to really unpack how students access those spaces. Um, I'm still a little unclear of like, okay, so how do students um, access international schools? I think that that could actually be a really interesting Mm -hmm. other Mm -hmm. episode of like, what does that look like? What does that process look like? But for the most part, I I would assume that international schools, the facilities are really nice. The accommodations, the like, that they're nicer. It's harder to like, it's harder to tell students in underserved communities in the United States that they're lucky to be receiving the education that they're receiving sure. because they walk into a building that tells them that every like single crap. day yeah. that, um, oh, no, like, yeah. I this is not luck. Right. Yep. Like yeah. they, there is a physical, there is a apart. physical manifestation yeah. of yeah. the true. systemic racism and oppression that exists in the United States just by simply walking into a school building. And maybe mm-hmm. it's a newer building, but like if you have to walk yeah. through a metal detector to get into your school building every day, like, let, like it just, it, I think yeah. it's harder to hide yeah. in the United States because, yeah. because of the great inequity in funding for the, the different school systems. So I wonder if that's an impact as well in international mm-hmm. schools where that's like a layer that doesn't necessarily exist mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and what the impact of that is. I would be fascinated to have, <laughs> honestly, yeah. that conversation that's in another point. episode because, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, interview some students. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Are you gonna no, say go something? ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I think I'm just thinking back to 
what I knew as a student and what I know now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just going to the U S as well and having some experience working, um, but also like living there and also going to a pretty nice liberal arts college. Um, but just knowing like the different experiences, I think I was just trying to capture and ask a lot of my friends that grew up in the U S or and from the U S um, I was just like, what was your experience growing up? Some went to private school, some went to public school. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of them explained, and a lot of them that went to public school always explained to me that, you know, you saw it right in front of you. Everything was so raw and how, you know, you got really rich kids in the neighborhood in this public school, but you also got very underserved and yeah. lower income families that are sending their kids to the same public school. Mm-hmm. And so this, the disparities are so stark and they're right in front of you. Like kids have to work at the McDonald's next door. These were my students specifically mm-hmm. in Minnesota. Um, they were like, no, I have a work shift, like a yeah. six hour work shift right after school. And you can tell which students are working every single day versus the ones that get to play the sports and do other things right after school. And definitely there was a difference between, and this is rural Minnesota. So there was a definite difference between, and you can see it on, um, in race and gender. Um, and it was pretty clear. And then I think like coming, thinking back to my international school, I'm like, wow, these are, these are for pretty higher and higher class and higher income families, like sending their kids to these nice schools. There isn't a, thought I, maybe there is but there there aren't many conversations with students around just like who's got it worse mm-hmm. and within like like you know conversations or it's not as clear and so I think students are raised to always like like think that they're they shouldn't feel or they they feel guilty because they they have so many privileges but it's also like they don't practice having conversations around like, oh, like, like maybe I should speak up for this because it's not right. They don't, I think there's a, there's a lack of practice there to advocate for yourself or advocate what you see right in front of you because you don't see it that often. And it's Mm -hmm. outside the boundaries of the school where Mm -hmm, you're starting to mm -hmm. see, okay, this community doesn't have these facilities, this, that. And so then coming back to service groups, students will be like, great, I'm so passionate about this community next door, this project or this group, because they don't have what we have. And it becomes like a, let me help. And kind of this, like, what is it? Um, is it white savior yeah. sort of mentality yeah. of like, and you know, that's kind of facilitated by the school and the education as well. And so like, it's like, yes, go help the community next door or go help this orphanage or go help this, mm-hmm. um, uh, whatever population you name it. Right. And and I think this is like the first time where the DEI conversation is bringing that mm-hmm. opportunity for mm-hmm. students to say, okay, don't look outside your school for one second. Yeah. Look right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like what is yeah. happening right here? And so many students are really struggling to be like, what do you mean? And you turn to the students of color to be like, and immediately you do. And you're like, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts? And some students of color really don't know how to practice yeah. being like, I don't know. I I feel good. Like I feel great. I feel lucky. Right. And it's only until you really have them and and that's okay. That's where they're at right now. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's just saying, and maybe it's role modeling for them that they can do that. 
And it's also saying like, what do we even just practice right here? Can we say, I don't think that's right that you just said this. Like, can we, are you able to say that to your peer in this, Mm -hmm. in this Mm -hmm. school? And then can you practice that outside the school? I don't Mm -hmm. think it's okay that this Mm -hmm. other school community doesn't get this resource or doesn't get whatever, whatever. And if Mm -hmm. we don't do it within our school, what are, what are we trying to do outside? Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. we're so focused on the outside and, and getting those cast hours checked and, and, you know, and even, you know, it's kind of egotistical for us. And I hear it in a lot of teachers too, to be like, look what project I'm in charge of, or like, look what I was able to, we're able to take my kids. And and I get it. Like, it's so exciting to, to show what you're Mm -hmm. able to do with students and expose them to. But I think I always go back and I'm like, what is happening right here? Can we just talk about that? And there has never been room for that. So this Mm -hmm. is really like one of the first times that we're getting to do that. And I'm personally kind of shocked that international schools are, are accepting and are like, yeah, let's have the students unpack the issues at our school. Like that's for me, that's really exciting. I was Absolutely. like, I don't even remember being given that voice or asked that. Yeah. So what do you think is, and kind of tying all this piece together and kind of back to our question at the top of this, like, what do you think so different or critical about having young people as part of the conversation? And I think in many ways leading the conversation, like, why do you think that is so important for this work moving forward? Oh my gosh. Well, I think one thing with young people too, I'm like, where are the experts in our own experiences? Yeah. Right. And so as teachers, you can, you can, we can create our own assumptions based on our own biases, but also our relationships with the students. Um, but I think the students can only really speak for their generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not part of generation Z, but Gen Z. Um, but I think they themselves can really talk about what is happening within their conversations with their peers. So if they're leading what change looks like within their peers, it's not coming from like a, oh, we're older than you. We know better than you. We're trying to erase that power dynamic, right? Mm -hmm. That older, better than you. We're saying like, you actually have the ability to see right in front of you and hear a couple tools that helped me as an adult that I wish I knew as a kid. And here you go feel free to, to address what you want to vocalize your own emotions, your own experiences, if you wish. Um, and it's just giving that space over to them. And mm-hmm. there are going to be students that have a lot to say, and there's going to be some that would rather listen. And I think that's just part of it. So I think it's always giving the voice over to the people that are experiencing whatever mm-hmm. they're going through. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Um, I wish that we could talk for hours longer. Unfortunately, um, I think that Doug would just <laughs> annihilate us if we were to just talk for hours. He's like, actually, no, I would. <laughs> he's back here like, actually, I could listen to this conversation forever. Um, but um, if people want to learn more about the work that you are doing, um, where can they kind of find more information? How can they support the work that you're doing? How can they support? I don't really show it anywhere other than um, I do need to update my LinkedIn account. So before that, um, hold off. <laughs> um, there's just a like an email error that I used my um, school account from St. Olaf, and now I can't get into my LinkedIn account. Yep. <laughs> um, so I was like, the I challenges of that. LinkedIn, man. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think one of the 
projects which I I didn't get to to talk about. There is a website that my friend and I put together, and some people in the international school space might have heard of Rachel Engel. Um, she wrote an article. It was called um, "An Open Letter um, yeah. uh, to the International Community." Your like the their place in the Black Lives Matter movement. And this one came out last year, right? Was that Mm -hmm. the one that was going around the spring last year? Yeah. 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 It was, we were having a conversation and she's like, I'm going to put this down on paper and she's doing her PhD and she's a great writer. Yeah. Um, And she just like wrote it all down. She's like, sent it to me. She's like, what do you think? She's like too much. And I was like, absolutely not send it. (laughs) And then after that, we built a website just to pull in like student initiatives that are happening. Cause just everybody was contacting her. What should we do? What should we do? She's like, I don't know. So if you want to check out the student initiatives, I'll hand it over back to like the students to guide the conversation. Awesome. Cool. Um, yeah. It's called global edu rising, edu rising dot right. org. Awesome. I hope it still works. I will double check. We'll link to that in yeah, our show notes as well. Um, okay, we always it. end the episode with a uh, kind of a tongue in cheek segment. Megan, do your fudging homework. Interchangeable. White ladies. So our homework, um, one I'll say is to go check out that article and that link that um, Allie just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And then also I have a couple other sources that are a little more central to U.S. work, just in terms of like what youth activists are facing today, thinking about particularly um, young racial activists that are doing the work in the United States, and then why it's so important to have um, these conversations and focus on young people and help support them in making our world better. So I'll link to those articles in the show notes as well. Mm -hmm. Megan, any homework? I think, I really do think... Um, the, the bigger picture, um, concepts of like that change theory, if you haven't looked into it, I really do Mm -hmm. consider it because I think that you see it once you know it, you see it everywhere. You see why people are struggling to get the vaccine that are vaccine hesitant. You see why people, um, even activists, um, or people that say that they are activists really can only give up so much until they can't give up anymore or like the work kind of stalls. Um, anyways, I just, I really suggest that. And then that book change or die was, it's a really fantastic book kind of takes it by case studies and examples. So yeah, it's really great. Allie, any homework for our listeners? (laughs) I love this. Um, any homework I, I would say any podcast (laughs) with (laughs) Brene Brown, Adam Grant, um, you name it, even, oh gosh, there's so many um, Icobithia, I would say that dare to lead Icobithia. Um, she gave a lot of great mm-hmm. insight as I was designing my program that helped me, um, design it a specific way. So, uh, there's two and it's on Brene's mm-hmm. dare to lead podcast. So mm-hmm. I'll go with that one for now, but there might be more I'm thinking of in the yeah. future. <laughs> Feel free to uh, email us more recs if you have them and we'll just add them sure, sure. and we'll tweet them out as well. Yeah. So thank you so much for taking the time. I know it's late there. And so we really, yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you it. so much. Thank you. This was so fun. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Perfect. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. Yeah, sorry, I had to, like, zoom in. I'm, like, realizing that my eyesight is not what it used to be. (laughs)
Hence the glasses. Right, the glasses. The Interchangeable White Ladies podcast is part of the Channel 253 network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Citizen Tacoma, Crossing Division, Flounder's B-Team, We Art Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.